Well, good evening, everybody, and welcome to Christ the King Anglican Church. It's good to see you all as we are all drying out in the yards and in the houses and in the basements, hopefully. And I will say that song, The God of Living Waters Flowing. We hope it was a song of redemption for water and not one that brought up any poor memories of this past week, as it did in my basement. But uh, if I haven't met you yet, my name is Jesse. I get to be the pastor here, and I say this every week. I mean it. I would love to sit with you and talk with you and hear your story and see what God is doing in your life or any questions that you have. Please do see me after the service if you'd like to set that up, and soon we'll have a cabinly where you can book your own time with me together. But if you're just joining us, we are walking through the book of Acts, and we're walking through God's story that he's unfolding of him revealing himself in the church. After Jesus ascended into heaven, he sent his spirit, and he drew people to himself, and he made his mission move forward. And so each week we're looking at different ways that that chapter or God's plan unfolds. And today's passage in Acts 8 is sort of obscure, but it's one that for many of us will stretch possibly some of our theological boundaries. It's one that even goes on to cause division in churches or between denominations because it presents a way in which the Spirit works that sits outside of many categories we might hold that some of us might think. And just to give you a spoiler, I'm not going to get into the nitty-gritty details of that controversy because I think there's something bigger going on here. It's interesting, as I've engaged with conversations in conversations with Christians throughout my years on this passage and, and specifically how the Spirit works, speaking with Christians of different stripes, I think quite often... Discussions can sometimes end up spiraling down into what I like to term as adventures in missing the point. And it sort of reminds me of a dumb humor commercial I saw once again. It was a dumb commercial, but I'll just give you it. It was, I forget where I saw it, but it's this commercial where this woman walks into a baby nursery and her husband is standing there looking over the, the crib with the baby sleeping in the crib and the husband is crying. You can see a little tear coming down his face, and it's this tender moment. It has soft light, and she puts her arm around her husband, and she says, it's great, isn't it? And he says, yeah, it is amazing. Can you believe this crib only costs $46.95? Like I said, it was a dumb commercial. But... It is amazing, it is amazing how sometimes, obviously, in this commercial, it was meant to represent that there was this beautiful life right in front of this father, and yet he was focusing on a small, important, that it was a, a low-cost crib, but a small detail when he was missing what was right in front of him, of course, the beauty of his own child. Now, in the same way, in this passage and in many other passages in the Scriptures, Sometimes Christians can get involved in details that I wouldn't say are unimportant because the details of the scripture are all important. They help us to love God better, to glorify him, to know his goodness better. But sometimes we can get so focused on certain details that we miss the greater moves of what God is doing, especially as we look at the book of Acts. And so this passage, to anyone who was aware of the movement of the scriptures, 
of God's promises, of the building of his expectations throughout the ages in the Old Testament and in the New Testament in the time of Jesus Christ. The longing for the revelation of God, if anybody was living in that, would immediately celebrate these obscure verses here, 14 through 17. They would see it as a grand gesture in the movement forward of God's big plans. Anybody waiting, watching, anybody building an expectation, anyone informed would read these verses and not just read past them, but would read them and immediately stand up and go, do you see what just happened here? Do you see this great step forward of the plans of God for the salvation of the world? Don't miss it. That's what they would focus on. The big picture of God's faithfulness, his love, which always has meaning for us here today in our own lives, presently. It's the story that we're actually a part of ourselves here at this church. So as we take a look at this passage, I want to invite us to keep that frame in mind. We're looking at the big move of God, a step forward in what he's promised would happen in the world. So if you have your Bibles or devices, you can go to Acts 8. We're going to look at Acts 8, verses 14 through 17. And I'll just read it here again. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, before we get into the specifics of these verses, especially in a book like Acts, it's good for us always to get a running start to know what's going on with the accounts of what's actually unfolding here in this book leading up to this point. And so we see the unfolding events. It starts in, in chapter 1. We have the ascension of Jesus, and he gives the, his disciples a command. And then chapter 2, the beginning is Pentecost. It's the sending of God's Holy Spirit. And then at the end of chapter 2, you know, we discussed how it was the first gathering of Christians, and we looked at what that looked like. They dedicated themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the prayers and to the breaking of bread and to gathering together. This is how they dedicated themselves as they went. And then as uh, in, we look through Acts 3 through 6, it's a series of miracles that God does through the apostles and new conversions based on those miracles. And you see this new body of Christ form. And all of this is happening against great opposition. So the apostles who are bringing this message of God's good news are thrown into courts. They're set before the Sadducees. They're made to give answers for what they're actually doing. They're charged not to preach the word. And, of course, we did a sermon on that. They go back and they say, actually, let's just pray to be bold. Come what may, let's be bold and share the goodness of God no matter what happens. And so it seems like as you're getting momentum in Acts 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, there's this momentum that's building, and it seems like nothing can stop this move of God. It's like a tidal wave that's happening. And, of course, last week we heard the very specific sermon about a deacon named Stephen by somebody who may become a deacon named Stephen and how he was actually a man full of the Spirit. So remember, he wants to be called Stephen full of the, Stephen full of the Spirit, full of grace. And we heard how Deacon Stephen, so we have all this momentum, and Deacon Stephen is ordained, and then abruptly at the end of that chapter, Stephen is stoned, and he dies. And then, if you read the subheading for chapter 8, at the beginning of chapter 8, it says, Saul ravages the church. 
And so if we think about what's happening here in the book of Acts, of course, as we read the rest of the story, we know that God continues to unfold his plans. But if we put ourselves into the shoes of the apostles and the church at this time, they've seen Jesus just ascend into heaven, which was, they see Jesus die and then ascend into heaven, which by itself is traumatic and great and awesome and awe-inspiring and confusing all at the same time. And then the Spirit comes, and then the Spirit seems unstoppable. It moves forward, and it unfolds, and it seems like nothing will deter what's happening. And then all of a sudden, Stephen is stoned, and Saul begins terrorizing the church. So you can imagine what they would have been thinking during this time. You can imagine the kind of questions that they would have asked the prayers that they would have been praying. Imagine trying to interpret Stephen's death and the per- persecution of the church from their standpoint. God, I thought, I thought we were part of your plans and your power and your move, and I thought anybody that trusts in God, nothing will stop them. And I thought your hand was with this, with us. God, why would you allow your baby church to be persecuted in this way? Why would you allow Stephen full of grace to suffer in this way. Of course, we see now that God used these as events to usher in his big moves, but for them at the time, from their perspective, not knowing the rest of the story, this would have been a major challenge for them. And I wish I could just sit in and listen to the prayers that they prayed together as they walked through this time. So that's the context. That's the tension that brings us into Acts chapter 8. Saul's ravaging the church. And then leading up to this passage that we read, so there's all this trouble, there's all this pain. And as we look what happens, we see that the Holy Spirit moves God's plans for salvation forward in bringing people to faith from Samaria. And as we look at what the Spirit does, I want to focus on two big things the Holy Spirit does here in the middle of Acts chapter 8 for us. So first, the movement of the Holy Spirit here was a sign of God's loving faithfulness. So as we just mentioned, it was a pretty crazy time. In the midst of miracles and new movements of tension and stoning, the apostles are sitting there wondering what is going on, what is happening, why does it seem like the church is dying when Saul is ravaging it? And then out of the blue, they hear that there's these people in Samaria of all places that have come to faith. They're just sort of going along, and all of a sudden, they, they, they hear this news that was just completely out of the blue. And every time I read this, it brings me back to a time when I was in college, and I did something really dumb. Actually, just as I graduated college, I did something really dumb. So my friend and I, we thought we'd have the idea before we started our new career that we would buy a boat and fix it up. Now, I'm, from the Univers- I'm from Maryland, so there's a lot of water over there. So we bought a parasailing boat from a Young Life camp. And it was broken, and we tried to fix it up. And so we fixed most of it, and then we put it in the water. And it kept floating. Don't worry, it didn't sink. And it had this giant engine, and there was this time where when we finally got the engine to start, we had to spray ether into the engine to get it going. And we finally got the engine going, and we put it in gear. And since we were the ones that did the interior of the boat, we realized one thing after we put the boat in gear. So it lurched forward, and I was the one holding the steering wheel. And as it lurched forward, I fell on my back completely because it had so much power. The problem was, is I noticed I was still holding the steering wheel. (laughs) 
So, because we were the ones doing the work on the boat, we forgot to hook up the steering linkage. You know, sort of something that you need with a boat. And because the steering linkage wasn't linked up, uh, the ignition wasn't linked up as well, so I couldn't turn off the boat either. And we're in a dock area. So here's a powerful boat. It had a 504, I think, uh, CI engine. And here we are barreling at a dock where there's some poor guys fishing. And these guys fishing, they see me fall back holding the steering wheel. And I turn off, and it doesn't turn off. And so me and my friend jump in the back of the boat, and we start ripping out wires from the engine, literally ripping off plugs to the spark plugs. And finally, the engine turned off. But as you know with boats, boats don't have brakes. And so as the boat is going, it keeps going, right? And so there was this moment where there's these guys, probably where you are, Matt, there's these guys on the on the dock fishing, and we're in a boat, and they're sort of looking at us, and we're looking at them, and we're sort of just drifting at them, and we just sort of go, well, I don't know what to do, and so we just ran right into the pier, we damaged the boat even more, and uh, we pulled the boat out of the water eventually, and we heard from our friend who was hanging around there that a bunch of fishermen got together, and the phrase that kept coming up was, those boys do not belong on the water. <laughs> Now, for the apostles, the apostles and the early church, it must have felt this way. This, is must, this must have been what it felt like. They had this power of the Holy Spirit behind them. And all of a sudden, they find themselves drifting. It looks like they're going to run and crash into something. I don't know if you've ever had that kind of experience in your life where you feel like there's momentum and movement and inertia going in a direction, and you're just sort of floating along and you don't know what's going to happen, and it looks like your life is going to hit something, or have some pain or some challenges. This is what it felt like for the apostles. They were floating along with this power behind them, and then again, out of nowhere, the Samaritans of all people came to faith. Now, if you know anything about the scriptures, you know that the Samaritans were people that the Jews would have considered, sell, would have considered sellouts in the faith. They were ones with impure faith. They were walking the easy path. They had syncretism going on. So they, they took the easy path in terms of faith. They didn't hold true to the faith that they received. And yet here they were, the Samaritans of all people, responding to the good news of Jesus Christ. Right when things seemed like their worst, right when the apostles were just sort of floating along without any control, the Samaritans come and they see that God is faithful, that he is unfolding his plans right before their midst. That the gospel of Christ, his light is spilling out beyond the walls of Jerusalem itself. Now if they were aware, they would have remembered the words that Jesus himself said in Acts 1 verse 8, where he says this, well, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jer Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So fast forward to Acts chapter 8. This is what's happening right before their eyes, that they become witnesses not only in Jerusalem where the Pentecost was, not only in Judea where most of their people lived, but now the gospel had skipped borders into Samaria of all places. And they were responding in mass. This was a major move forward in God's plans to reach the entire world. 
And I think all of us have seasons in our life where we can relate to the apostles in some way. Like we're drifting along. Maybe you know that experience. And what we see here in this account is that God is always faithful. God is always faithful to his plans and his promises. And he always carries us along with them. Now, it doesn't mean it's always going to be easy. It doesn't mean we won't have Deacon Stevens having challenges or people like Saul ravaging the church or other challenges in our lives. But what we can see from this passage is yet another example of God's ultimate faithfulness. And the sign of his faithfulness here is the movement of the Holy Spirit. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This is the movement of the Spirit, the sign of God's faithfulness, and this who is present in all of our lives. God will be faithful to us. He will continue to move his salvation plan forward. We sang that song, your goodness is running after me. This is God's goodness running after the world, unfolding into the life of the Samaritans. Now, if God's goodness moves into the lives of even the Samaritans, even those with syncretistic faith, the spiritual sellouts, those who took the easy path, then why wouldn't God, God's goodness also unfold in all of our own lives and into the ends of the earth, into even Virginia Village and into our communities? God's goodness is chasing after his people and drawing them to himself. So for us, we say, let us draw near in faith to God and ask him to continue to reveal himself, to keep jumping borders beyond Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So that's the first thing that the Spirit does here. Second thing that we see in the work of the Spirit is to bring unity to the body of Christ. Now, as I've said just a minute ago, we know and what we've alluded to earlier is that Jews and Samaritans don't get along. In fact, when Jesus met the woman at the well in Samaria, the disciples were surprised that he was talking both to a woman. Why would Jesus just be alone and talking to a woman? And secondly, why would Jesus, of all people, talk to a Samaritan woman? They were surprised by that because Jews and Samaritans never associated. And so I don't think it's a mistake that when the gospel message was received in Samaria, that God had his, his apostles come down to bear witness to what was going on. By forcing the apostles to come down and confirm the work that these people had received the word of Jesus Christ, it, God was ensuring that the gospel would be one for all nations, that all people could come to faith in the name of Jesus Christ based on the movement of the Holy Spirit, and God would create through that one body and one family and one church in his name. Now, incidentally, if we go later in the New Testament and we see what Paul writes, he sort of writes about this. He says this, God's purpose in salvation was to create in himself one new humanity out of two, thus making peace. Consequently, you, that's us who are Gentiles, are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles, that's who went to go affirm this, and the prophets in Christ Jesus, to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So this is, again, what we see happening here in Acts chapter 8, is God is drawing together where there was enmity. He's creating unity by the power of his spirit, a place where his spirit would dwell. That's what's happening here. Unity, oneness for us here in the church is something that we always strive for. 
It's something literally who we are as the body of Christ. We are the body of Christ gathering together in his name by the power of his spirit. And as confusing and as out there as the work of the Holy Spirit can be to many of us, one thing that we always see, whether it's here in Samaria or in the crazy Corinthian church or here today what we pray for, the work of the Holy Spirit always moves to bring unity in the body of Christ. And regardless of the specific ways in which the Spirit manifests, the Spirit always works to bring together His people. Now, I read a story about a group of Christians in Germany after World War II. And during the time of World War II, uh, this happened in many denominations. This one is actually about the Brethren Assemblies. Uh, As you read back into the history, like many churches, the Brethren Assemblies sort of split into two groups, two camps of people. One was a camp of churches that didn't necessarily go along with the Nazi regime, but didn't really resist. They sort of complied and, and acted in compliant ways. But the other half of the Brethren churches refused to cooperate. In fact, they worked against actively any way that they could in a peaceful way against the Nazi regimes. And of course, those who tried to resist the movement of the Nazis, many of them were sent to concentration camps, but many had challenging times. Their churches were shut down. Their people were persecuted. And they had a much rougher time. Whereas the, the brethren folks that just sort of complied and stayed quiet and kept their heads down, they sort of just floated through the war. Of course, it wasn't easy, but it was a lot easier than their other ones than the other ones in the Brethren Assemblies. And then after the war, there were all sorts of feelings of bitterness that ran very deep between the two sets of Brethren Assemblies, those who who cooperated and those who wouldn't cooperate. And there was lots of division that happened, of course, at the church then. So what they decided to do is that they wanted healing. They wanted to at least give healing an opportunity. And so they did a retreat. The leaders of both factions did a retreat together. And for several days, it says in the account I was reading, it says that each person, each leader sort of went away and prayed quietly. So they were there in the same space together, but they went away and they prayed quietly, examining their own hearts in light of Christ's commands. And then when they came together, Francis Schaeffer observed this. He was talking to his friend about the incident and his friend asked him, so what'd you do? What happened? Like, what happened after all that time? And Francis Schaeffer said this, after we went away and prayed and invited the Holy Spirit in, we were just one. We were just one. As we confessed our hostility against each other and our bitterness to God against each other, we ended up yielding ourselves over to his control. And the Holy Spirit created a spirit of unity among us. And beyond our own strength, love filled our hearts and dissolved our hatred. Now, I hope you've had a chance to experience something like this, but I've experienced this kind of thing myself, not, of course, to this extreme. But when people seek the Lord and they invite the Holy Spirit in, it's amazing to see the unity that God builds across national lines and ethnic lines and racial lines and, oh my, even political lines doesn't erase all the friction points, but it creates a oneness and a unity in the power of the Holy Spirit, and it all comes from the power of God. Now, this is why we pray for our church to be one, not just 
our church as Christ the King, but all of God's church to be one, to bear faithfully the name of Jesus Christ through the unity that's built up in the Holy Spirit, that we would be one. Now for us, just to close here, as we walk together as a church, we are a part of Acts 1-8, what it says. Jerusalem, Judea, and to the utmost parts of the earth. We here in Virginia Village or wherever you live, maybe Littleton or Aurora, we are a part of the utmost parts of the earth, and God has invited us into the same unfolding plan of his salvation and his mission in the world. And to equip us and to empower us, he has given us his spirit. The same spirit that grabbed a hold of the Samaritans, the same spirit that moved all through the book of Acts, is present here and accessible to all of us in this church. And it's a sign of his faithfulness, it's a sign of his love, and it's an empowering for us to go out and create unity in the world by drawing people to the name of Jesus Christ. So as we pray together, one of the prayers that we have constantly in our church is we often say, come now, Holy Spirit, in your power and draw us in your name. It's something that I pray for for the church and something that we can all together pray for together, that God would make us one, that his spirit would pour out into this community and into the world. So let us pray.